0: Hi, all You're listening to At The Beam, a medical education podcast where we discuss high-yield oncology with a focus in radiation oncology. We are Trudy and Josh, and thank you for listening. All right. Welcome back to another episode of At The Beam. So Josh, before we start today's case, I wanted to ask you about a research project, which I think is very relevant to what we will be discussing today.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, I have a particular interest in cardiotoxicity as well as you. And so we were chatting to see how often heart is spared and what sort of metrics they look at. It It looks like it's been evolving through different sectors in radiation ecology, but not really in a unified manner. And so trying to translate some of the findings that we find in one part of Radonk and kind of translate it to others, see if it lays out. But on sort of a technical side of things, you know, as you know, as Um, That I've been a dosimetrist for a number of years, so uh, very often we find that we can spare things um, as long as we can identify them on a contour and then know what numbers we need to hit. So yeah, I remember you and I were chatting to say, oh, you know, I wonder how often some of these substructures are being contoured in in the heart and how often they're being spared and looked back to uh, conduct a study and uh, kind of dive into
0: that when we're discussing the premise of this project, you know, I think a lot of it is just people look mainly at the mean heart dose, but obviously in esophageal cancer, it's very hard to achieve a low mean heart dose. We pulled our data sets from our two institutions where we did residency training and went through and looked at all of our esophageal cases and basically tried to see whether or not we were, one, contouring the LAD because, you know, there's evolving literature to support that that's very important, and then replanning cases where the LAD constraint wasn't met, which, um, you know, Josh knows this off. I'm pretty sure Josh has the LAD constraint tattooed somewhere on his body
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know the the uh, esophagus cases in particular they're pretty unique right they, they're always in the same locus meaning they're always going to be behind the heart there and uh for whatever reason the led itself or those sort of anterior coronaries seem to have a pretty strong effect in overall cardiac health which i guess makes sense it's know, helping supply that left ventricle there and Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the sort of conductive parts of the heart are all really centered there. And um, so, yeah, one of the things you and I talked about was, hey, why don't we apply this LED constraint that I I know um, the Atkins group had had really looked into Atkins and and Raymack. And um, so they found that LED V15, uh, looking into 15 grade, less than 10% of that vessel involved really did lead to projected better cardiac outcomes just based on what they saw. So we wanted to see how well that could be spared. And so uh, we looked back on cases, contour the LED, I think it was nearly every case we had to contour it on because I don't mm-hmm. think they had traditionally been accounted for, at least in the era that we were looking at. Right. And because they were all uh, IMRT or VMAP planning, it was pretty easy for us to sort of add that constraint in into the optimizer, right? So we just kind of continued the optimization. Mm-hmm. Ready there on these plans.
0: So, Josh, remind me um, how many of the plans that we had looked at had originally violated the LAD constraint of LAD fifteen less than ten percent.
1: Yeah. So, uh, you know, after we contoured this, we looked at the uh, dosimetry, and then without any changes, we saw that about half of them had violated the LAD, mm-hmm. and then we were able to replan um, those cases. And then all of them, we were able to reduce the LED quite a bit, but on 94% of them, we were able to meet that LED dose constraint that they had noted had led to um, adverse outcomes in, in cardiac health. Um, and this is all uh, without really adjusting any other part of the plan. We're talking about target coverage or any changes to the other OARs. It did shift some of the lower doses around a little bit, but um, yeah, it's just pretty incredible. You know, As we're learning more and more about some of these, uh, the importance of the substructures, as well as sort of long-term um, adverse impacts mm-hmm. we can really help identify them and really avoid them I mean, you can't avoid what you can't see and yeah. now we know we you know what to look for so it's, it's really pretty cool to just just show in a very simple way hey if we know what we want to avoid we can avoid it in planning and then really help craft their plans to um to some of the important parts of the structures there
0: yeah, it just shows how feasible it is and, you know, you're not really losing anything by trying to come off of the LAD and, you know, just from doing this project with you, which has been amazing, I've uh, kind of changed how I approach cases, especially for soft tissue cancers, and I was just telling Josh that now I contour the LAD. <laughs> To be careful and mindful of it, and then set that constraint in to make sure you know we're really reducing the risk of cardiotoxicity for for these patients.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's it's really cool. I mean, what we're able to do for our patients. You know, they're yes. going through all these cancer treatments and they're cured, and you know, and we don't want them to have to deal with sort of the secondary effects of this. And right. Yeah. Yeah. As we're finding out this information, it's really great. I mean. Uh, Just kind of diving further in, there are other coronaries that are involved that that can help kind of lead to these toxicities. So hopefully, as we find more information, Mm -hmm. we find different areas that we can avoid. But this is- More
0: tattoos for you.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's right. More (laughs)
0: tattoos.
1: (laughs) Just kind of uh, going along those lines, the reason we bring this up is because we want to talk about an esophageal case today. So it kind of falls in line with some of the things we would consider. So just continuing on this upper GI series and um, us chatting about esophageal cancers, uh, we just wanted to note that there's about 18,000 new cases of esophageal cancers that are diagnosed annually in the US. So a relatively significant issue that we would deal with day-to-day as radiation oncologists. And when we think about the types of esophageal cancers, we generally classify them based off of histology, and this will align well with um, tumor location as well as how we manage things um, in the world. SCC, or squamous cells, are the uh, most common subtype esophageal cancers, and they have uh, distinct risk factors. So Trudy, kind of diving into this case, can you name some of these risk factors?
0: Yeah, so we oftentimes use a mnemonic, A, B, C, D, E, F. A stands for achalasia, B, bad diet, C, caustic stricture, uh, and then another C is cigarette smoking, D for dysplasia or diverticuli, E for esophageal webs, which is often associated with Plummer-Vinson syndrome, which is a triad and includes iron deficiency anemia, atrophic glossitis, and webs. Which, by the way, as a medical student, I diagnosed. And I was very proud of myself. Oh, wow. E for ethanol, and then F for familial. All
1: right. Um, so the other common subtype of esophageal cancers are adenocarcinomas. So these are more commonly observed in North America. Uh, because of the unique set of risk factors uh, that are involved with this. So we can remember this by the mnemonic BOG, B-O-G. So uh, B would be Barrett's esophagus, O for obesity, and G for GERD. Um, So Trudy, can you uh, describe the general anatomy of the esophagus for us?
0: Oh, I would love to. <laughs> so the esophagus is generally 25 centimeters long. It begins at the cricopharyngeus muscle, which is around 15 centimeters from the incisors, extending to the gastroesophageal junction, aka GEJ. Therefore, the esophagus spans from 15 to 40 centimeters from the incisors. Going from the top down, the esophagus is divided into different sections. Okay, so that this includes the cervical, upper thoracic, Middle thoracic, lower thoracic, and then the GJ sections. The GJ can then further be class, subclassified according to the Sievert scale, which comprises of type one, two, and three. This is dependent on the location of the tumor centroid. So for Sievert type one and two, the tumor originates anywhere proximal from two centimeters below the gastric cardia. Type one and Two tumors are generally approached under the esophageal cancer paradigm. However, a SeaWorld type three tumor originates two to five centimeters below the gastric cardia and is thus treated as a gastric cancer, which follows a very different treatment um, paradigm than esophageal cancer.
1: Yeah, and typically SCCs, they're found in the proximal portions of the esophagus from cervical to mid thoracic, so spanning from that 15 cm to 30 cm uh, mark from the incisors and distally it's more common to develop adenocarcinomas. Uh, so the esophagus is lined with non-keratinized squamous stratified epithelium, which then transitions to glandular epithelium as you move distally towards the stomach. So true, while we're on the topic of anatomy, Um, Can we talk about the layers of the esophagus because this will be critical for staging and understanding the patterns of nodal spread.
0: So the esophagus consists of multiple layers. The innermost layer is called the mucosa. And as we move outward, there is a submucosa muscularis and an adventitia. There is an extensive network lymphatic plexus in the submucosa, which, as you may remember, is just the second innermost layer. Thus, esophageal cancers have a high propensity to present with node-positive disease, unfortunately. Another thing to note is that there is no serosal layer in the esophagus.
1: All right, so uh, let's start with our case. So we're going to see a 65-year-old male. He has a BMI of 27 and has GERD, and then he presents to you with a three-month history of progressive dysphagia to bread. And softer solids and now liquids intermittently. So as a result, he's lost about 20 pounds over the last few months. Um, What would you like to do?
0: So I like to obtain a comprehensive history and physical and inquire about symptoms of upper GI bleeding, such as melana and lightheadedness, as well as fatigue, voice hoarseness, cough, dyspnea, an- anorexia, edynophagia, nausea, vomiting, and or regurgitation. I'd also like to know when his last endoscopy was. On exam, I would focus on the abdominal and nodal exam. For labs, I would like a CBC and CMP. And then the first step to establish a diagnosis is EGD with biopsy if it's indicated.
1: All right, so uh, an EGD is performed and uh, tumor thickening starts around the 30 cm mark from incisors, but the adult scope is unable to be passed distally. Um, A pediatric scope is then used and it shows that the tumor spans about 5 cm with no involvement of the GEJ. So this is consistent with a Seward 1 tumor. The biopsies are taken of the primary lesion, and this confirms a grade 3 adenocarcinoma. So, True, are there any specific markers that you'd be interested in?
0: Yeah, I would like to know the PD-L1 status and um, whether there is microsatellite stability. If there is a strong suspicion for metastatic disease, we'd also want to know the her 2 new status.
1: All right. So, PD-L1 is less than 1%, and MMR proteins are intact. her 2 new is uh, 1+. plus. Uh, what's next?
0: For staging, I like to get an FDG PET CT and EUS, if possible, and then discuss this case in a multidisciplinary tumor board.
1: All right. So on your CT chest abdomen and pelvis, there is a circumferential thickening of the distal esophagus, and there's infiltration of the periesophageal fat. Uh, and that's suspected based on ill-defined margins, as well as stranding that's surrounding the esophagus. And they're also seeing two suspicious appearing perisophageal nodes, and they're measuring up to two salmon size. The staging PET, it shows intense uptake at the primary esophageal mass with extension into the surrounding soft tissues as well as the two parasophageal nodes. The US unfortunately is not possible because of severe stenosis. There's no evidence of regional or distant disease. So what's your one-liner during your tumor board?
0: So I would let the team know that this is, this patient is a 65 year old male with a KPS of 90, minimal comorbidities, and a stage three CT3N1M0 distal soft adenocarcinoma. It is HER2 one plus, MMR intact, with no PL1 expression. I would advocate for this patient to receive new agent chemoradiation followed by surgery. In the meantime, I would encourage early involvement of a nutritionist to help prevent further weight loss and deconditioning, especially with the surgery planned.
1: All right, uh, so some additional considerations for uh, our placement of feeding tubes. So if the patient can swallow liquids well enough, likely you can avoid uh, tube feeding. Um, if the patient goes on a supplementary diet that includes things like Ensure, Boost, and so on. Um, If dysphagia is very severe, you may need a J-tube placed in if surgery is planned. If surgery is not planned, then you can do a G-tube. If surgery is planned, um, G-tubes affect the circulation to the neoesophagus, So you might be putting a hole in your future gastric conduit. So G-tubes are not encouraged in scenarios like this for this patient. Um, Now that you mentioned he has a clinical T3N1 tumor, uh, can you please go over staging with this?
0: So, a CT1A invades the lamina propria or muscularis mucosa. T1B invades the submucosa. T2 invades the muscularis propria. T3 invades adventitia. T4A invades the pleura, pericardium, diaphragm, azagous vein, or peritoneum, but is considered resectable, whereas this T4B invades aorta, vertebral bodies, or airway, and is considered unresectable. Clinical N1 involves one to two regional lymph nodes, clinical in two, three to six nodes, N3, seven or greater nodes. So our patient had a tumor invading into the fat surrounding the esophagus, so it may be presumed the adventitious invaded, even without an EUS. So One thing to know is that with the level of dysphagia that our patient is experiencing, the chance of T3 disease is greater than 90%. So with two nodes and um, invasion of the adventitia, the patient stage is a CT3N1 clinical stage 3 per the AJCC 8th edition. Of note, the clinical staging and corresponding T and M classifications are different for squamous cell versus adenocarcinomas of the esophagus.
1: All right, great job. Um, the T classifications depend on how deep the tumor is invading, which is why uh, EOS is ideal um, to help us distinguish the depth of invasion for esophageal tumors. It also gives us the most accurate involvement of parasophageal nodes. Uh, this is less relevant for our patient because he has an obvious extension on his CT imaging and coupled with uh, significant dysphagia. So the tumor board agrees with your recommendation for neoadjuvant um, chemoradiotherapy what dose and fractionation are you treating to and what chemotherapy would you recommend be given concurrently
0: i would treat to 50.4 gray in 28 fractions with concurrent paclitaxel and carboplatin
1: all right so uh for rt dose um anywhere from 41 centigrade this is per the cross trial up to 50 40 centigrade would be appropriate um, instead of paclitaxel and carboplatin, um, another commonly used uh, chemotherapy regimen is 5-FU as well as oxaliplatin. Uh, so Trudy, how would you sim this patient?
0: I would send the patient supine in a vacuum mold with arms up and obtain a 4D CT simulation with IV and then a sip of PO contrast a minute before the scan. I would fuse my staging FDG PET CT and use this plus the EGD along with the 4D CT to generate an ITV. I would then add a 3 to 4 centimeter superior and inferior expansion along with a 1 to one 1.5 centimeter radial margin following the mucosa while including the parasaf gastrohepatic and celiac lymph nodes. I would then add a five millimeter PTV margin expansion.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um you wanna make sure you follow the mucosal pattern or spread and crop out the heart, lungs, liver, and any bone that's involved in your contours. Um, do you want your patient fasting before the scans and treatments?
0: So I would consider MPO for around three hours prior to each treatment to hopefully maximize reproducibility and minimize gastric extension. But just to know fasting before treatment is actually more critical for tumors if they involve the proximal stomach.
1: All right. So your uh, incredibly handsome and kind of
0: <laughs>
1: starts to plan of the treatment. Uh, what kind of technique would you tell them to use?
0: You know, along the lines of our discussion earlier, in order to minimize cardiotoxicity, I think I would prefer an IMRT or VMAT technique.
1: Oh, wow. Great choice. (laughs) Uh, So what are some of the uh, key aspects of the plan that you'll be reviewing and uh, carefully evaluating?
0: Yeah, so I would, first of all, want to make sure that there's good target coverage, right, with at least 95% of the PTV receiving 100% of the dose, which is 50.4 gray. I would want to make sure the heart V30 is less than 30%, but ideally less than 20%. The mean heart dose less than 30 gray. The LED V15 less than 10%, of course, Joss. (laughs) Um, I'm reading the lung V40 less than 10% the lung V20, less than 20%, and the lung mean less than 20 gray. Stomach mean less than 45 gray, and then a spinal cord D max of less than 45 gray.
1: Yeah, there's a lot to look out for in these plans that, uh, yeah. that are more central. Uh, so what toxicities are we going to counsel our patient on?
0: So I counsel a patient on fatigue, esophagitis, cough. So in the long term, I worry about radiation pneumonitis or any sort of Um, conditions involving the CAR, such as coronary artery disease or MACE, and esophageal structures.
1: All right, so your patient completes chemoradiotherapy. What do you want to do
0: next? I would get a restaging FDG PET-CT about five to six weeks after the completion of chemoradiation.
1: All right, so on restaging PET-CT, it shows a near complete clinical response of the treated tumor with some additional uh, residual tracer activity at the index mass. He then goes on to surgery, which consists of a distal esophagogastrectomy. And on a surgical path, there's a tumor found to be invading through the muscularis propria into the adventitia. There's zero of 15 nodes that are positive, um, so no nodes, um, negative margins, uh, making the final stage a YPT2N0. Because there is residual disease after neoadjuvant chemo radiotherapy, should you receive adjuvant therapy?
0: Yeah, so uh, he should, and this is based off Checkmate 577, which was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2021, where patients with residual pathologic disease after chemo radiation were found to have a disease-free survival advantage with adjuvant nivolumab for a year.
1: Man, that's excellent. Um, And what is the follow-up for this patient going to be like?
0: I get surveillance CT, chest, and pelvis every six months for the first two years, and then annually for up to five years.
1: And great work, Trudy. <laughs> we wanted to thank Dr. Christopher Anker, of the University of Vermont, for helping review today's case. Incredible person, someone I've known for a long time. Has been a, a mentor of mine for many years. You can find show notes at atthebeam dot com. And remember to trust, but always verify.